15. And sunny day on Saturday with the high of 34. Stay tuned. Coming up next, Let's Talk Vets. Uh, that's a show about Veterans Affairs with Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. And a very good evening to you. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to Let's Talk Vets. This program is produced by vets for vets. And, of course, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg, USAF 1968 to 1972, proudly serving. This program is dedicated to the 1%. Now, I'm not referring to the uber-rich who are so often vilified by feckless politicians for the crime of achievement. Nope. I'm talking about the men and women of the U.S. Armed Forces who all wrote a blank check back with the accounts of their lives when they raised their hand to take their oath of enlistment. Uh, Monday was, of course, Veterans Day. And we have some very special um, things for you tonight um, as we go through this program. And we hope you'll enjoy what we have for you. So, um, before we continue, I want to start this show off with um, a kind of a special piece. Um, it's a poem called It's the Veteran. Now, I've heard this at several uh, funerals, but this reading by Teresa Cahagis was recorded on Memorial Day at the Living History Oral Exp Expression Competition in Holmesdale, Pennsylvania. It is the veteran, not the preacher, who has given us freedom of religion. It is the veteran, not the reporter, who has given us freedom of the press. It is the veteran, not the poet, who has given us freedom of speech. It is the veteran, not the campus organizer, who has given us freedom to assemble. It is the veteran, not the lawyer, who has given us the right to a fair trial. It is the veteran, not the politician, who has given us the right to vote. It is the veteran who salutes the flag, who serves under the flag, and whose coffin will be draped by the flag. And I'm not sure what else... Just take a moment to remember our veterans. And I'm not sure what else we can say after that it is the veterans and thank you to all for your service and we can say happy veterans day now i attended the veterans day ceremonies in government center in monticello and tonight we'll hear a keynote address by john little the new county manager deputy county manager and distinguished navy veteran then we're going to go back in time to our first program august of 2018 which featured a virtual tour of the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor. This remarkable place is hallowed shrine to those who were wounded and died in service to our country. And recently we had learned that there was a major renovation taking place, so we felt it would be great to revisit the staff and find out just what this all entails. First, however... Here are some dates of note in November. Don't forget the U.S. Postal Service has deadlines for military Christmas holiday mail. For a list of those deadlines, please go to USPS.com. November is Military Family Month, a month to honor and celebrate the contributions and sacrifices of families of U.S. Armed Forces. 
November 3rd ended daylight savings time, and November 10th is the birthday of the Marine Corps. Hoorah. November 11th was Armistice Day in France, a day set aside to remember those who died or were injured in World War I and other wars. November 11th was also Remembrance Day in Britain, which, of course, is the day set aside to remember all those men and women who uh, were killed during the two world wars and other conflicts. November 11th was also Remembrance Day in Canada. That day set aside, of course, to commemorate sacrifices of people in all armed conflicts. And, of course, here in the U.S. was Veterans Day, the anniversary date of the signing of the armistice, which ended World War I. Also a day set aside to thank military veterans for their service. You know, Veterans Day is an official U.S. holiday. And it is observed annually on November 11th. It honors U.S. military veterans and coincides with other holidays, including Armistice Day and Remembrance Day celebrated in other countries, marking the anniversary of the end of World War I and major hostilities of World War I were formally ended at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918 when the armistice with Germany went into effect. Now, the United States observed Armistice Day until this date was renamed Veterans Day in 1954. The United States declared war in Germany on April 6, uh, 1917, more than two and a half years after the war had started. And before committing boots on the ground, the U.S. had remained neutral, though it had been an important supplier to Great Britain and other Allied powers. American soldiers under General of the Armies John Pershing Commander-in-Chief of American Expeditionary Force, arrived in large numbers on the Western Front the summer of 1918. During the war, the U.S. mobilized over 4 million military personnel and suffered 110,000 casualties, rather fatalities, including around 45,000 who died of the 1918 Spanish influenza outbreak, 30,000 before they even reached France. The war saw a dramatic expansion of the United States government in an effort to harness the war effort and a significant increase in the size of U.S. armed forces. Allied forces endured some of the most brutal conditions imaginable. Trenches were employed on both sides as shelter and fortress. The constant exposure to damp, wet conditions devastated the troops. The influenza epidemic spread around the globe, and in two years, one-fifth of the world's population was infected. Those 20 to 40 were most likely to die in this pandemic. 675,000 Americans did die of influenza. To give you a better idea of what it was like for troops on the ground, here's an excerpt from a letter written by Private Frederick G. Woodham's Regiment, 13 London Rifles, 16 February, 1916, in France. He had been wounded twice and ultimately was killed in action on August 16, 1917. The last time I wrote, I think I told you we had lost our comfortable job on railheads. We've been shifted from general headquarters and are at the most godforsaken hole there can possibly be in France. We had a rotten journey, raining all the time. Readily was at 4 a.m., and we eventually left the station about 10 a.m. Accommodation consisted of old cattle trucks and rations of bully and biscuits. It was a very cold and uncomfortable journey. We arrived at our destination about 4.30 p.m., and after standing in the rain for two and a half hours with full pack on, we set out on a 10-mile march. It's the worst march I've ever done. The majority of us at the finish were absolutely knocked out and were only too glad to crawl into the billets before going to bed, which was about 12 p.m. They gave us a mug of tea, the first that we'd had since six in the morning, and, best of all, a ration of rum. The up-to-date soldier kit to carry about from place to place consists of 150 rounds of ammunition inside the pack, Overcoat, fur coat, two pairs of socks, one pants, one shirt, ground sheet, and iron rations, emergency food supply, outside of the pack. Macintosh and mess tin in the haversack. Cleaning kit, hold all, 24 pounds rations, soap and towel, and on top of that, extras such as handkerchiefs, plate, mug, tobacco, etc. Two smoke helmets, all in a satchel slung over the shoulder. 
a respirator in the left flap of a tunic, field dressing on the right, and, of course, the rifle. In all, it's no light weight on a long march. It takes all one's strength and staying power just to keep going. We are billeted in a barn and have a sea of mud to get through. We have no boards, so sleep on the ground. Fires are not allowed in the billet, and at night time it's devilish cold. In the village there is a little general shop, now nearly sold out. One pub where they sell something that they call beer. There are no shops of any description and, of course, no amusements. Rations are not so good now. Today's dinner, Sunday, was bully beef, stew, and two potatoes between thirty-five men. We have a loaf and a bit and two tins of jam between seven men, the shortbread issue being augmented by the world-famous army biscuits. Our captain is a perfect gentleman, and about the most popular man in the regiment. The junior captain is an absolute sport, and the platoon officers are all very decent sort of fellows. We appear to be much better off in this respect than before, and certainly think that D Company has got as good a selection of officers as any other company in the battalion. Did you understand what they had to carry? Oh, my. You know, Veterans Day was actually the genesis for this program. A number of years ago, I participated in a special Veterans Day broadcast on a New Jersey radio station. They had set aside 10 hours of programming on Veterans Day for 10 different vets to tell their stories and play their music. A great idea. And I thought about how this special day really is and and how this solemn day is adulterated by retail sales events and other commercial endeavors that seek to entice folks to buy more stuff in honor of veterans. Shouldn't we honor our veterans year-round? Why not have a radio broadcast every month to highlight our vets, their contributions, and their sacrifices? Well, I proposed that idea to the VP of Programming, who seemed receptive but ultimately decided it did not fit their format. Seriously? The very fact that you have the freedom to broadcast news and entertainment as you see fit is due to the sacrifices made by our veterans. So I guess uh, to fit their format, we needed the usual 22 minutes of paid commercial advertisement to enable the station to honor the vets year-round. Oh, well. After all, can we really honor our vets if we don't drive a particular brand of auto or wear the latest designer clothes? I mean, a Veterans Day would not be complete without a visit to Acme Auto World for the lowest prices of the year an event to meet their sales manager, Harry Slick. For exclusive limited-time savings, vets get free donuts and coffee. Well, fast forward about a year and a half ago when I stumbled onto WJFF and offered to volunteer for an air shift. Again, I proposed the idea of a monthly show for vets, and in a moment of weakness or maybe questionable judgment, our general manager seemed to embrace the idea, or at least that's what I understood him to say when he quoted my favorite movie line, Son... You're on your own. However, here we are 16 months later. I hope we've been and will continue to be of service to all those who serve. Now, on Monday, as I said, we attended Veterans Day ceremonies at Government Center in Monticello. Here now is Deputy County Manager John Little with a few wise words on this occasion. Now we have our keynote speaker, and he is Deputy County Manager John Little. Mr. Little served in the Navy for over two decades and retired as a lieutenant commander after a monumental career. He has been in office since April of this year. He lives with his wife and children in Liberty. Ladies and gentlemen and fellow veterans, John Little. Good morning. Fellow veterans and elected officials, DA Jim Farrell, Legislator Steingart, Legislator Sorensen, I saw you hiding, there he is, hiding in the back, Sheriff Schiff, Treasurer Buck, uh, and all the uh, local officials, uh, thank you for coming and showing your support. Um, There wasn't a round of applause there, I I noticed, for the elected officials, but (laughs) suffice to say, Somebody who's willing to put their name out there and expose themselves to the public is is worthy of recognition in their own right, and we appreciate your service to our community. Thank you. (laughs) 
Ladies and gentlemen, I was, I was recently honored with an opportunity to write a guest editorial for the Sullivan County Democrat in support of uh, Veterans Day. And in that editorial, I tried to convey that while millennials and boomers try to blame each other for the decline of Western civilization, and the media tries to convince us that there are only two skin colors left in this country, red and blue, we deny the very truth that has allowed humanity to progress to opportunities our ancestors never dreamed, that we are far stronger united than we are divided. <clears throat> it has become common to believe that our best days are behind us and disaster is on the horizon. The aged yearn for the halcyon days of their youth. Emotion trumps reason and fear suppresses hope. But as a brief aside before I get into the core of my story today, everyone should know that I grew up a Philadelphia Phillies fan. I'm preaching unity, I swear. It gets worse, gang. I joined the Navy and I spent two tours in Newport, Rhode Island, where having no designated hitter to cheer for, I chose David Ortiz and the Red Boston Red Sox. I got a few Red Sox fans in the house, that's good. In the spirit of my call for unity, though, I want to rely for the start of my story on one of the greatest American philosophers of all time, Hall of Fame Yankee catcher Yogi Berra. As Yogi says, the old saying goes, predictions are hard, especially about the future. And I, I bring that up to say that our heroes throughout American history may have always believed in their cause, but they never knew that they were going to win. And that's something that we should remember. It's easy for us to forget that General Washington thought his chances of being hanged by King George III were just as good as becoming our first president, if not better. And the men who suffered through the winter at Valley Forge with him, um, they probably weren't all that optimistic either. And President Lincoln, he wasn't even the favorite at the Republican Convention in 1860. He went through a bunch of generals before he found his way to victory in the, in the Civil War. Millions of people feared an imminent Japanese invasion of California in December of 1941. And did the people that were coast watchers that day have any idea that a mere four years later, Admiral Nimitz would be standing on the deck of the USS Missouri accepting the Japanese surrender? They certainly didn't. And I bring up that, that story in particular because I know that forever, however popular FDR was and is in the history books, not everybody voted for him, but Americans united in support of the cause. Now at the same time, American military history is full of, not full, fortunately, but there are certainly stories of failures like the traitors Benedict Arnold, George Armstrong Custer, and even General Westmoreland who along with the Secretary of Defense and the presidents and many of the, many of the senior leaders, sent a lot of folks in this room into battle in Vietnam, not as prepared as they could have been. And certainly we lost much blood and treasure for the sake of a battle that the country was not united in fighting. Nevertheless, I should cite that among many of the veterans in this room, there were 261 service members who awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for their service in the Vietnam War. And we should always express our appreciation for them. So then what separates success from failure in America's fights for freedom? If American men and women continue to be willing to sacrifice everything for what they hold dear, I know this, some of our greatest leaders, Patton and Halsey, they never lack for pride, but their confidence was fully justified by the results created by the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who followed them into battle. I personally had the great opportunity to serve directly under Jim Mattis, a brilliant and humble man who has pursued religious extremists to the ends of the earth. But our service members still patrol the mountains of Afghanistan and the oil fields of Syria today in a seemingly endless march toward an unknowable state of victory or defeat. It is not in our fighting men and women alone, nor is it the quality of their commanders who assure victory. So with all that in mind, we don't yet know what the history books will write about our time. And it does little good for us to guess, as Yogi told us. But we do know this. As long as there are veterans and active duty service members that can be thanked for their service, we're always going to have a chance. History has also taught us that victory is only possible when the cause is true to our American values of liberty and justice for all, when we are committed to our allies, and when the will of the people is stronger than their doubt.
So on this Veterans Day, we should certainly be thankful for those who served, but we should also remember that in the words of President Theodore Roosevelt, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. So I close reminding everyone that a better world always awaits those who would sacrifice themselves for the cause of others, for the sake of others. Regardless of how gloomy the forecast, our success as a society is not determined by who wins the argument on Facebook, but by who follows their heart and joins their neighbor in creating a future worth fighting for. That's why after 20 years of service in our Navy aboard three ships and from countless trips away from my family, I chose to stay here in the arena of public service here in Sullivan County. I hope on this Veterans Day everyone will take time not just to salute those who volunteer to serve others, but to honor all service by uniting with neighbors of all colors and creeds to make the world a better place. It's the only way to win. So please, thank a veteran for their service, but don't let your celebration of service end there. Join the fire department. I'm always going to promote the fire department. J.C. Young, company number one, Liberty. Even if it's just to hand out Gatorade to firefighters as they're leaving a burning building or to cook at their fundraiser breakfast. Take the time to learn all sides of an issue and become an engaged citizen in our democracy. Donate to our local food banks. Teach a kid to read. Support the Boy Scouts. For American democracy is a garden, and it only reaps good food to those who are willing to tend it. Thank you. Thank you, John. Inspirational words, to be sure. You're listening to Let's Talk Vets right here on your community radio station, WJFF. Thanks for dropping by. This year we lost um, a true hero, an icon of this area, and a man who stood very, very tall in his own right. I'd like to read a statement from Sullivan County Legislative Chairman Luis Alvarez which he issued upon receiving confirmation of the death of Francis Curry of Hurleyville on October 8th. Francis was a Medal of Honor winner. Sullivan County and this nation have lost a man among men, a true hero, one of the most cherished and honored citizens, born in Lock Shell Drake and raised by foster parents in Hurleyville after being orphaned, Francis Curry was among the last of our World War II veterans, especially Medal of Honor recipients, and his story continues to inspire to this day. An automatic rifleman with Company K, 120th Infantry, 30th Infantry Division, U.S. Army, in the latter half of the war, Sergeant Curry and his platoon were assigned to defend the small Belgian town of Malmedy. Facing a superior force of German tanks, Attempting to flank his battalion, Curry repeatedly braved enemy fire to inflict heavy losses and repel their advance, while also rescuing five American soldiers that had been pinned down. In addition to the Medal of Honor, he also was presented with the Belgian Order of Leopold, a silver star, a bronze star, three purple hearts. In 2013, his portrait graced a U.S. Postal Service stamp. And the town of Fallsburg and the county proudly celebrated him for many, many years at annual Francis Curry Day. Just another example of how an ordinary person will stand out by doing their duty and doing the ordinary things extraordinarily well. The National Purple Heart Hall of Honor is located at 374 Temple Hill Road in New Windsor, New York. It uh, coexists with the New Windsor Cantonment, uh, Washington's final headquarters, the Revolution. And I want to share with you a condensed version of our virtual tour that we aired on our very first program in August of 2018. 
We'll follow that up with our latest conversation with Director Anita Padilla and Director of Programs Peter Bedrosian to review what is happening with a major renovation to this hallowed facility. Let's take a trip to learn about Purple Heart Medal itself, the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor, and what this award means to those who received it. It means that I've done my job, I've served my country, that it, it makes me prouder of who I am, the, what my service has done for this country. It's an honor to wear it, and uh, I wear it for the guys that aren't here. Being awarded the Purple Heart, uh, had, it was kind of bittersweet for me. Uh, there was a lot of survivor guilt uh, that I experienced. Served my country, and I spilt my blood, and uh, it, it, it feels good. It, it really feels good uh, to know that I was there when they needed me, you know, and I did my, and I did my very best. That Purple Heart, uh, it's the medal that no one wants to receive because you got to get wounded to get it. Uh, but once you have it, uh, that medal means the world to me. I am proud of that Purple Heart because it means that I put myself on that line. I protected America. In a few minutes, we'll take you on a virtual tour of the hidden gem, the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor located at 374 Temple Hill Road in New Windsor, New York. This New York State facility exists for the express purpose of collecting, preserving, and sharing the stories of Purple Heart recipients from all branches of the service and across all conflicts for which this award has been available. The Hall of Honor was dedicated November 10, 2006, and is co-located with the New Windsor Cantonment, the last encampment of the Continental Army at the end of the Revolutionary War. Join us now as Peter Pedrosian, Program Director at the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor, traces the evolution of this award. One of the items it displays here is Elijah Churchill's badge of military merit. Our modern Purple Heart was actually, its antecedent is the badge of military merit, which was created by George Washington August 7, 1782 in his Newburgh headquarters. Established by General George Washington, the Badge of Military Merit was created to award a singular meritorious act of enlisted soldiers. The badge was purple-colored, heart-shaped, and meant to be worn on the left facings of the recipient's coat, allowing that enlisted person to pass the guards as could any officer. It was a way to recognize their extraordinary service in a way that didn't cost Congress a lot of money. The good news about that is we know three men earned it, Churchill, Brown, and one month later, Daniel Bissell. The bad news is it was all but forgotten after the revolution ended. Although U.S. soldiers fought many subsequent battles, the badge fell into disuse. General Douglas MacArthur was a powerful advocate for the creation of the Purple Heart Medal commemorating Washington's ideals on the 200th anniversary of his birth. And on February 22, 1932, Douglas MacArthur signs Order Number no. 3, which creates the modern Purple Heart Award, a heart-shaped award, gold-edged, purple laminate with the profile of George Washington in the center of it, on top of his head, if you want to call it that, is a Washington family coat of arms. And today, in 2018, it's awarded any member of the American military who was killed or wounded by enemy action, which has many different definitions in this date. This magnificent facility consists of two structural elements, the Timeline Corridor and the Great Hall. The Timeline Corridor is a hall displaying the great seals of each branch of the U.S. military in the order of their establishment. On the left, a row of windows overlooks a small courtyard. Each window bears a placard, which together chronicle the history of this site. On the right is a series of displays accounting for every war from World War I to Afghanistan. Each display features one branch of service correlating with the dates of conflict and the founding of that branch of service.
Leaving our timeline corridor, we enter the great room, which is filled with military memorabilia and personal accounts of some Purple Heart recipients. A large bronze statue of two corpsmen helping a wounded comrade dominates that space. Here you will also find a small theater showing a film featuring Purple Heart recipients and several stations where you can explore the role of honor. We have what's called the Roll of Honor here, which is a database of recipients. The challenge we face every day, as there is no master list of Purple Heart recipients, the information about one's awards and decorations are found in that person's own records. Our recipient database here is built by recipients, their families, or friends. It has a good representation. It covers the American Civil War through operations from Freedom Sentinel in Afghanistan, all 50 states, Puerto Rico, Guam, Samoa, the Philippines, and two Australians who awarded theirs during the Vietnam conflict. They were serving with American forces at the time. And so it's a good, it's a good sample of those, yet it is just that, a sample. Our earliest known recipient, based on the date of incident, Warren J. Coates, was wounded April 6, 1862 at the Battle of Shiloh, Tennessee. Our most recent, Chad Huggins, was wounded January of 2016. Our first African-American to earn the award, William Hannibal Thomas, wounded February 22nd, 1865, at the Battle of Wilmington, North Carolina. He was wounded on Washington's birthday in 1865. But you can read his story, Beatrice's story, certainly Douglas MacArthur's story. All those are available currently in the database. And if you know someone as a recipient and you don't see the names here in the Roll of Honor, all that means is they've not yet been enrolled. We encourage you to enroll those recipients. Our website, www.thepurpleheart, does have a link to the enrollment form. The irony of what we do here is you might think it's kind of a sad, dreary kind of thing. And yes, to uh, take a phrase out of the old uh, CSI TV series, we do see people on their worst day. But there are people who have survived. Or their families have come in. That's pretty optimistic. It's, that, that, that's pretty uplifting when someone comes in and says, Man, I'm there in your facility. Let me tell you that story. Or someone comes in and say, my son is here. Can I come see him? As sad as that is, it's also very positive because you can come here and if that person's enshrined here, their story's here. And veterans come in who know somebody or who are local who have a connection to one of our stories come in and they can, they can touch that, that physical image on the wall and their friend is here. As difficult. As I said, that was our first program. And that was in August of 2018, um, truncated as it is. Uh, Peter Bedrosian is the director of programs down there, and uh, he's around the site, but he also goes out and speaks. And he knows that site and the history and facts and figures inside and out. When it comes to intellectual property, Peter Bedrosian is truly a land baron. Well, we had heard further that the Purple Heart Hall of Honor would be undergoing major renovations to enhance the visitor experience and effectively double the size of this facility. So we decided to go right to the source and get the skinny from the director, Anita Padella, and once again, Peter Pedrosian. We're joined today by the director of the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor, in New Windsor, New York, Anita Padella, and the director of programs for that same facility, Peter Bedrosian. Afternoon. Thank you Good for afternoon. joining us. Good afternoon. Uh, in August of 2018, about a year ago, we did our first Let's Talk Vets program on this radio station. And the first interview we did was with you, Peter, and you were <laughs> very gracious to take our listeners on a virtual tour of this remarkable place. Now, today, here you are on the verge of a major renovation and rejuvenation of that facility. And so what we want to try to do, we're going to talk a little bit about the facility as it is to give our listeners a little bit of contrast as we go on and talk about your plans for the new uh, updated Purple Heart Hall of Honor. Anita, when was the current facility constructed? Well, construction began before 2006. We first opened our doors to the public on November 10th of 2006. Okay. And, um, Peter, for our listeners' benefit, for those who haven't been there, the site has other great historical significance, right? Well, the site has uh, two, two sites well, in one, basically. 
Revolutionary War history, the last encampment of Washington's army at the end of the Revolutionary War. The Temple of Virtue was a building which was built to have officers' meetings and so forth. It's where Washington dispelled the Newburgh Conspiracy, where the committee met that selected the first two recipients of the badge of military merit, the predecessor for the Purple Heart. But more focused on the history connected to our award is that on May 28, 1932, 136 veterans of what was called the Great War, World War One, were on these grounds to receive their Purple Hearts. Do you have any idea of how many folks have visited the facility since you opened, Peter? Hard to say because uh, one, I wasn't here since we opened, of course. Uh, we do get approximately twenty to twenty-three thousand visitors per year to the hall. That's uh, a pretty fair amount because the place is spacious, but it isn't that spacious. So uh, that's not yet. That's that's incredible. Um, Anita, Peter told me that the U.S. government has no official list of Purple Heart recipients. And that being the case, uh, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, that your database has kind of become the definitive reference source for those wishing to find information about a friend, relative, or loved one. Yes, I think it's fair to say that our role of honor database has developed into one of the most comprehensive lists available to the public today. Uh, however, because enrollment is voluntary, and we do not automatically receive the information, while the list is considered one of the most comprehensive, it is not complete. Okay, so a, a veteran or somebody on the veteran's behalf has to produce the paperwork necessary to enroll one in your database. That is true. Now, I understand there was a time, Peter, when the uh, service members actually had to apply for the commendation what is the current process? You're right. Between 1932 and World War II, uh, you had to say, gee, I was wounded or I got a citation for merit. Uh, do I get one of these awards? Many of those individuals were civilians at the time they applied. By the time we enter World War II, the processing goes to the person's chain of command, so the recipient need to do nothing or should not have to do anything uh, in cases where oversight occurred that will occur. But nowadays... Is done through your chain of command. If you're admitted to a facility, the medical staff there process you. They assess whether it was done by the enemy, and then the award is made without you having to engage in any direct activity yourself. Uh, as you may know, on uh, September the 11th, we have the American Veterans Traveling Tribute Wall of Honor coming to Rock Park in Rock Hill. It is a replica of the one in Washington, D.C., and there were some 304,000 people wounded in Vietnam. Uh, there's about 58,000 names of those killed in action on that wall. Do you happen to know of those 304,000, how many would be in your archive? Yeah, the most recent figure we have is 20,450 of the wounded from Vietnam. We have a long way to go. I understand that, that folks need to actually research your database here, or they can do it on the web, they can do it at your facility? That's true. Our website and our role of honor kiosk here at the hall both include the same information about the Purple Heart recipients that we've enrolled. And individuals can search our database, view their profile, and learn more about their stories of service and sacrifice here. So if you go to our website, www thepurpleheart.com, you will find whatever information available that they've shared with us on their profile. Well, the existing hall is impressive, Peter, and you did a great job last time taking us through, so let's see if you can repeat that performance and <laughs> kind of in a nutshell just explain how the hall is laid out and, and what is there as it currently is. Uh, when you enter the hall, past the uh, gift shop and the uh, greeter, you go down a timeline quarter, which left-hand wall really recapitulates the history of the ground we're on. Why are we here? The Revolutionary War history, the Temple Hill Day program, and the artifacts, indeed original medals from recipients who were here in 1932. On the right-hand wall is a timeline of America's conflicts from World War I through Afghanistan, and also representation of each branch of service, the case dedicated to each branch of service. At the end of that quarter, there's a timeline interactive. You can learn about all those events, 
where people earned Purple Heart. We know that Purple Hearts were available. And that culminates with a, a silent video screen beneath which is on display uh, Elijah Churchill's badge of military merit, the predecessor for the modern Purple Heart. Then when you go around the corner to our main gallery, you have story panels around the walls that uh, tell you the story of how the award is made and presented to people and the stories of the steps along the way. They have incidents, being treated, and coming back home, and a panel for those who made the ultimate sacrifice. There are also two large cases talking about how warfare has changed, how the combatants have changed, and the central point is a large sculpture of three soldiers, one of whom being aided by a medic and an officer bringing him off the field of battle. Behind those three soldiers is a small theater, which has a video of nine minutes length, where nine recipients tell you their stories. And the final kind of the capstone of the hall is the Roll of Honor database stations where people can go and look up those ancestors or other individuals who they know may have earned the Purple Heart. How was it decided and when was it decided that this new renovation was, was needed? We knew from the beginning, essentially, um, that we would eventually want change. And we essentially outgrew our initial design and recognized the need to expand and certainly enhance the facility to improve the visitor experience. Okay, so could you kind of just give us an overview or 10,000-foot view, as we say, of what the major changes, <laughs> changes and improvements will be? And, and then, Peter, when Anita's done, maybe you could drill down into some of the details for us, okay? Sure. The improvements that are being planned, and, and we're in the planning phase now, are going to include new exhibits. So we're going to introduce a lot more stories, um, improve visitor circulation, a much larger program space, and more user-friendly accessibility for our visitors. So as a result of some of those changes, visitors um, can expect to see exhibit space double in size and our program space move upstairs so that it's going to be more accessible to the public. Along with that, we expect our parking capacity to increase. Well, people come in, one of the issues we've focused on for the first 13 years here uh, is the incident itself. What happens to you that you earn a Purple Heart? But in terms of the journey you take, you have to enter the service. Either you volunteer, you're drafted, you're trained, you're sent overseas or to some place where you're in harm's way. The incident occurs, you're treated, you have a road recovery, and there are those, of course, who come back uh, who have made the ultimate sacrifice. With doubling the size of the galleries, we're now able to, or more able to tell the stories of that transition from being a civilian to being someone in the military to the incident and to coming back to your civilian life or to being recognized for your ultimate sacrifice. So those pieces of the story much expanded in new exhibits. Just to kind of put a fine point on it, in terms of square footage, what's there now and what will be there when you're done? 7,500 square feet currently, and, and you expect that to double. So right up around 15,000 square feet when we're done, huh? That's... I think that's fair to say, a little more or less here and there. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Anita, when, when we spoke in preparation for this interview a couple of weeks ago, you had some, um, some general time frames for construction and completion? Yes, and, and we expect construction to begin late, late fall of this year and will continue through the fall of next year. Will there be a period when the uh, hall is closed to the public? We do expect to close during construction. However, we will continue to build our Roll of Honor database and plan our programming for the newly designed building while we're closed to the public. Okay, so the facility will be uh, closed uh, pretty much for the whole year from the fall through next year, right? That's been the discussion. Okay. <laughs> I know you'll be there, Peter. I'm it's telling the back you. room stuff, so yeah. uh, it's not as if we're closing in and stopping the clock, so to speak. We'll still be here doing Roll of Honor database. We need to point out programming will be planned, uh, getting everything prepared for the new exhibits to go back in. So people can uh, still contact you or use the the database facility and what have you to to research or to put somebody up for consideration. We will be updating the Roll of Honor database, continuing that work right on through the entire project. 
Okay, for the $10,000 question now. Approximately how much is this projected to cost, and how is it being paid for? The construction costs are estimated at $8 million, with a total project cost not to exceed $10 million. And this project is being funded by a special appropriation from the legislature. If our listeners want to get involved in the current project or with the Hall of Honor in general, how do they go about that? Well, we always ask that help us spread the word, uh, talk about our mission, and to collect, preserve, and share the stories of Purple Heart recipients. Visit the museum and encourage family and friends to enroll their loved ones. Certainly, while we're closed, if someone says, gee, we'd like to learn more about the hall, can you come visit and tell us about it? By all means, you know, we do outreaches. So if the the, the Kiwanis Club, a veterans organization, a church group, senior citizen center, wanted a presentation to kind of get get the flavor of what will be here when we open back up, uh, that's also a possibility of becoming involved, more by having us come out to them, but you're calling us up. If they know of a story about a recipient, uh, we get Facebook questions about, gee, I found a purple heart, what do I do? How, can you refer me to somebody and so forth? So we'll, they can participate that way as well. Just to recap, if someone wishes to propose someone or a, a vet wishes to propose themselves for inclusion in your database, what's the process that they go through and what do they need to do that? They need to complete the enrollment application, which is available on our website. You can download it on our website at www.thepurpleheart.com, or you can always call our office at 845-561-1765 and request a copy. We'd be happy to mail it to you. We do ask that individuals complete that form and submit it along with official documentation which verifies the receipt of the award, and encourage them to submit a narrative, which speaks to the circumstances surrounding the Purple Heart Award itself. And we always welcome photographs and other information to enhance the profile. So one more time for the contact phone number, the website, and your hours of operation, please. Okay. The uh, website is www.thepurpleheart.com. And the phone number is area code 845-561-1765. And currently, our hours are Tuesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And on Sundays, 1 p.m. to 5 p.m., they'll call us for holiday hours. Most holidays were closed, but Veterans Day, Memorial Day, and so forth are open. Now, as this project continues, um I suspect you're going to have uh, updates on the website? That's that's the idea, absolutely. Our Facebook page as well as our website. I'll follow up on something you mentioned before about how people become involved currently. Uh, We do group programs for both adult groups and educational groups. Uh, There's a $30 program fee for a basic group visit, and and that includes up to 10 people. Above 10 people is $3 a head extra, so if you had 12 people, for example, it would be $36, but that would include a, an escorted guide experience for the adult programs and a much more structured program for educational groups. Well, I can't thank you enough both for your time, and I know our listeners appreciate it. Thank you, Anita and Peter. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. My stone is red for the blood they shed. The medal I bear is my country's way to show they care. If I could be seen by all mankind, maybe peace will come in my lifetime. And, of course, you're listening to Let's Talk Vets here on WJFF, Jeffersonville, your community radio station, Radio Catskill. Let's take uh, a couple of minutes and do some news before we wrap up tonight. Uh, It's always a good place to start. We do have a couple of stories for you here. Here's one I think you'll appreciate. 
Prominent federal buildings and national war memorials will now fly the iconic POWMIA flag alongside the American flag throughout the year thanks to legislation signed into law recently. The proposal passed without objection in the House last month and the Senate earlier this year as designed to help highlight the continued sacrifice of military families whose loved ones are still unaccounted for overseas, estimated at about 82,000 individuals. President Trump finalized this measure on Thursday night, and um, last Thursday night, veterans advocates praised the move as an important message to the entire country. The daily display of the POW MIA flag and all the prominent federal facilities now serves as a daily reminder that these heroes and their families are forever etched in our DNA. So said uh, Foreign Wars National Commander William Schmitz in a statement. The flag was created in 1972 for the National League of Families of American Prisoners and Missing in Southeast Asia uh, during the Vietnam War. It's been flown at numerous federal properties over the years, but typically only on special occasions and holidays. Advocates began pushing for a year-long display of the flag earlier this year after some lawmakers in D.C. stopped displaying the black-and-white flag, you-are-not-forgotten banner, outside their congressional offices. How patriotic. The uh, law applies only to a specific set of federal buildings, including the White House, the U.S. Capitol, the Pentagon, the Department of Veterans Affairs headquarters. Every post office throughout the country will also uh, be required to fly the POWMIA flag. In addition, display of the flag will be required at every major U.S. military installation, every national cemetery, and numerous high-profile war-related sites like the World War II Memorial and the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. The proposal was sponsored by Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, and Republican Chris Pappas, Democrat from New Hampshire. And finally in the news, House lawmakers plan to push ahead with veterans' mental health expansion if they get past their squabbles. A bill to dramatically expand the private sector mental health care for veterans that has been the center of partisan attacks among House Veterans Affairs Committee members, imagine that was uh, to be the congressional uh, the topic at a congressional roundtable today. Lawmakers are hoping to craft a compromise plan to ease tensions. Last week, Republican members of the committee stormed out in a, in a heated markup section after Chairman Mark D. Ticano, Democrat from Tal- California, refused to allow minority party amendments on proposal for women veterans program reforms. Among the Republican complaints was one that mental health bill, dubbed Improve Act, had languished in committee for months. The bill, which was drawn support from both uh, Republicans and Democrats, would award grants to private sector mental health experts in an effort to provide quicker, more convenient treatments for veterans in distress. Supporters have argued it would be a valuable new tool in the effort to reduce veterans' suicide. The concept is modeled after the Housing and Urban Development VA support housing grants established a decade ago, which give federal dollars to local support groups who provide direct housing support to veterans. That program has been lauded as a major advance in how the VA care is delivered to veterans, helping significantly reduce the homeless uh, veteran numbers. It is the hope that uh, this, among other programs, will uh, greatly help to combat uh, suicide amongst veterans. Well, I told you our show was full tonight, and it is, and we have one more surprise for you in just a minute, so don't touch that dial. First of all, we want to acknowledge some people. That make this show possible, and especially this edition, John Little, Deputy Sullivan County Manager. Anita Padella, Director of the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor, New Windsor. Peter Bedrosian, Program Director, National Purple Heart Hall of Honor in New Windsor. The Military Times and Teresa Cahagis.
We want to thank you once again for joining us for our program, Let's Talk Vents. And a very special thank you tonight and farewell to my good friend and mentor, Andrea, our assistant manager who sadly has now departed WJFF. We wish her all the best. Thank you, Andrea. You will be missed. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send your upcoming events so that we may get them on the air, both in our normal public service announcement segments and this program. You can email us at vets at wjffradio.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. Until next time, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening, and thank you for your service. You know, there was a time when uh, comedy was simple and dependent on the comedian's ability to identify with the human condition and timing. And we could all laugh at ourselves in good, honest fun versus ranting strings of expletives and mean, hurtful sarcasm. There are many legendary entertainers of that particular time. One such was a fellow by the name of Red Skelton. And in honor of our servicemen and women, here is his rendition of what the Pledge of Allegiance means. When I was a small boy in Vincennes, Indiana, I heard, I think, one of the most outstanding speeches I ever heard in my life. I think it compares with the Sermon on the Mount, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and Socrates' speech to the students. We had just finished reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, and he called us all together, and he says, uh, boys and girls, I have been listening to you recite the Pledge of Allegiance all semester, and it seems that it has become monotonous to you. Or could it be you do not understand the meaning of each word? If I may, I would like to recite the pledge and give you a definition for each word. I, me, an individual, a committee of one, pledge, dedicate all of my worldly good to give without self-pity, allegiance, my love and my devotion. To the flag, our standard, O oh glory, a symbol of courage, and wherever she waves, there is respect, because your loyalty has given her a dignity that shouts freedom is everybody's job. Of the united, that means we have all come together. States, individual communities that have united into 48 great states. 48 individual communities with pride and dignity and purpose, all divided by imaginary boundaries, yet united to a common cause, and that's love of country, of America. And to the republic, a republic, a sovereign state in which power is invested into the representatives chosen by the people to govern and the government is the people. And it's from the people to the leaders, not from the leaders to the people, for which it stands. One nation, meaning so blessed by God, indivisible, incapable of being divided with liberty, which is freedom, the right of power for one to live his own life without fears, threats, or any sort of retaliation and justice. The principle and qualities of dealing fairly with others for all, for all. That means, boys and girls, it's as much your country as it is mine. Now let me hear you recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America 
and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Since I was a small boy, two states have been added to our country,